well-being is a really necessary conversation for everyone in journalism, no matter where we work. I think it's really important to normalize the conversation and say that actually this can have an effect on anybody, anywhere, hopefully not everybody. But I think that it's it's just got to be part of, of the conversation we have in newsrooms about how do we do this better. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at the news and views of the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from my interview with Hannah Storm, founder and director of the Headlines Network. Headlines Network's an organisation working to improve the mental health of people working in the media. We spoke about why Hannah thought mental health can be bad among media professionals, what organisations and individuals can do to make things better, and about Headline's new podcast and the incredible first episode featuring Lise Doucette and Lindsay Hillsom talking about mitigating the risks involved in frontline journalism. Fantastic. But before we get to that, we're going to go through our main story. So the Times has gained a thousand new subs per day during the first two weeks of the war in Ukraine. So it's the slimmest of silver linings here, but the Times has reported that it received one of its highest growth rates ever over the course of the first fortnight following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So this is according to Press Gazette, which says that the Times head of digital Edward Russell told Press Gazette the rise came due to a mix of people seeking out a trusted brand and the way the newsroom has innovated in response to covering the war. So Russell said the trend that we're seeing is that in moments of crisis, whether it's the onset of coronavirus or Brexit, you see this shift towards trusted brands. I have a quick question to the two of you. Does the timing of this seem a little bit gauche to you? Does talking about subs now? Yeah, but it's real. It's it's what happens. And you can't compare, although we're Prime Minister tried to the other day, Mm. compare Brexit to the Ukraine war. You can't directly compare, but People are looking around and thinking, what the hell is going on? Mm. And so they do turn to trusted brands, whether that for them is the Times or whether it's the Guardian or you know, whatever, whatever their brand is, they turn to them. So it's it's more evidence of that, which we've seen kind of from other global events like this. Yeah. You know, they would have made, well, I'm assuming, they would have made an announcement about their digital subscriber numbers anyway around this time because... You, they do regularly. So then I have a question for Esther, because previously me and you have been quite down on the idea of what was called the Trump bump. And we were saying that there's not going to be a global crisis on the scale of kind of Trump's presidency every other week. Were we wrong about <laughs> that? Call his presidency a global crisis. <laughs> um, yeah. Were we wrong about that? And is this, you know, were we wrong to say that there will not be more events of that scale that do demonstrate the value of a, of a newspaper subscription? It, it, it seems since 2016 that everything's kind of gone down the toilet a little bit. I mean, we've seen <laughs> this sort of yeah. spiraling cycle of ever more catastrophic news. But actually, I think I think the early 2000s were just a relatively kind of quiet period in the world history. Yeah, and we all just got used to it. But I think there's there's also this um, with with the rise of social media and, and digital news and all that. There's this, and I've I've seen this accusation leveled after this piece, and it, it's a I can I can see where people are coming from. I don't, I don't agree with it. Is that the media and, and news is reliant in a way on these huge world events to survive? Mm. Um, 
and that you know it, the, the latest Reuters report talked a lot about some of the crisis coming around news avoidance and the fact that after COVID people would just really you know people check it out in the news they were cancelling subscriptions there was a lot of that sort of thing lapsing this has almost sort of hooked it back in and, and there, there have been a couple of accusations leveled saying what you know the media certainly in the early days before Russia actually invaded were they hyping a lot of the invasion talk up Okay, but we know that's absolutely bollocks, don't we? We do know that. Can we just get a line in the sand here for the Media Voices podcast Mm -hmm. that we know that is bollocks? Absolutely. Him him lining up all his troops and saying it's fine, it's just exercises was absolute bollocks. And and I think this this is where the trusted brands come in, is that the trusted brands are the ones that are sort of taking a bit more of a measured view of this. There are are some publications that are just going so bonkers about this that it's it's very difficult to, to stay engaged with it. No, because no, because you said you know that the the news news businesses are reliant on some to mm. some extent on kind of these big flashpoint events, but that's but, also but the they, they always have been. This, yeah, and, yeah exactly. and People say that this is this is a digital media thing. It's not. You know, in, in the old days, you'd have the most outrageous headlines printed on the front of the papers with the little boy mm. shouting in the street. Okay. Yeah, but what's gone was the habit of buying newspapers. So these spikes. They didn't exist before, not the same mm. way. I'm sure people read more when there was a war on. Yeah. Um, but they probably didn't buy anymore because it was, they just bought it anyway. Even if there was nothing happening, they bought a newspaper. Mm. So Whereas you don't think now, there was like a spike in newspapers, in newspaper stand sales? It was kind of. I doubt it very much. I don't, I don't you know. know. I, th- I thought you had the whole thing that people would, people would only stop buying buy a newspaper if, you know, if that day's headlines looked particularly. Interesting. Nah, but and you had this huge pressure on a lot of the younger paper boys to 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 sell them. Nah, no way. Well, moving on then. So slightly beyond that, um, Roussel also said that the twenty fourth of February was the biggest day in Times Radio's history in terms of total listening yeah. hours online and via the app and smart speakers. That's, I suppose, validation of what Times is trying to do with that. But it also invokes this, you know, this this idea that. The Times has always said, you need to pay for our journalism, you need to pay for our journalism, and that this hard paywall is the only way to do that. And that, you know, the way that they monetize people by this hard paywall is what enables them to produce that very high-quality journalism. But at the same time, as we did with coronavirus, we've seen the FT drop its paywall, and we've seen a couple of other places make a lot of their articles free to access for that very up-to-the-moment information. Uh, we could have we could hash that argument out again. I just wondered what we is your take on this. But do we think that this is because it is a conflict? Is that different in any way from coronavirus, which was there was not an aggressor, there was no potent, there was no real need for that kind of up to the minute response? No, I think it's different than that. I think the difference here, um, obviously, not like it's an incredibly serious situation if you're Ukraine or if you've got family in Ukraine. But for the most part, what's happening in Ukraine at the moment doesn't affect our day-to-day lives in the same way the pandemic did. The pandemic was a public health crisis. So, you know, the information the papers needed to get out was wait and get tested, what the latest measures were, um, things that, you know, as you stepped out your front door affected you. The Ukraine crisis, it's, that's more about being informed and you kind of pay for the higher quality level of information, which is why I don't necessarily think that uh, the, the mm. Times is in the wrong here for not dropping their paywall for it. Okay, All it's right. a humanitarian crisis, but it's it's not in the. I suppose it doesn't influence the way we go about our day to day lives at the moment. I probably disagree with that. In, in what sense? Well, because 
and maybe this is an age thing, but I grew up, and Billy Bragg wrote a piece in The Guardian about this, actually. I grew up in the shadow of a Russia that could quite easily just wipe everyone out. You know, I, I left on the Clyde Coast. The whole hillside on the other side of the river was basically a storage space for nuclear weapons and nuclear submarines in the locks. We were very, very aware of what could happen. And I think sometimes people get really separated from the reality of these things that, you know, this nutcase could quite easily launch a missile that could start World War Three at any point. And it doesn't need to be a nuclear missile. It could just yeah. go into Poland and blow some people up in Poland. Some some really tired, really sad, really hungry Russian soldier mm. could press a button that sent a missile stick, yeah. into Poland and we're all fucked. Talking about going, you know, making this more about kind of the news angle of this, does that relate to what I was saying about this not necessarily being no, an up-to-the-minute thing. Absolutely, and it is different from COVID because, you know, you're right, Esther, that we had to, are we supposed to be wearing masks today? Or we've got to isolate for how long? Where's the hot? Yeah, that was absolutely about people's day-to-day lives. But I think there's a, this, is, this, is, this is blowing people's minds because we mm. thought this was done. We didn't think this could happen again. And I think there's a there is there's maybe a generational thing here going on where you guys are like, oh well, we've never heard of this before, so what does it actually mean? Whereas yeah, I'm looking at yeah. it and thinking, déjà vu. Mm. This is a problem. And, and I will also say, I'm obviously not saying it doesn't matter. It's a vital global. No, and yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but this is a proper glitch in the matrix for people for a lot of people. It's like that's what's supposed to be over. So what does that mean then for how you would like to see? newspapers cover it but i think okay now we're go, now we're going to go off on a tangent <laughs> i think this was where absolutely the bbc comes into it so mm-hmm. you know they've put clive myrie at the beginning least to sets there all the time um that kind of and, I, and i'm not and I, i'm not putting down i'm not let me say this a different way and i'm not diminishing the input that sky or uh, Channel 4 News has in the, this area, but that public service broadcaster approach to this is so, so, so important. Mm. Because, you know, you get that whack jobs on one side and the whack jobs on the other side that says that uh, BBC is not reporting this truthfully. Well, f*** off. They absolutely are reporting this truthfully. Yeah. And that is really, really important. And it comes back to what Ed Russell says about um, trusted brands. The, the BBC, despite all the bullshit that gets talked about and all, and the best efforts of the Tory party, the BBC is a trusted brand. Yeah, and look actually, at the, the, the impact of the World Service. The work they've done to get some of the information into Russia has, has been superb. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was just going to say, actually, we don't want to, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, we don't want to just do a kind of a quick whistle-stop tour through everything that is going on in Ukraine. That deserves its own special, yeah, bare minimum. But yeah. Just to flag up some examples, they're using kind of the, the Tor browser to get information into Russia via the dark web, which is a challenge, but we've seen a huge uptick in people in Russia actually signing up for that. It's also, you know, launched relaunched its shortwave radio solution so people can actually get information there without it having to go through kind of these these 
state-owned and operated channels in Russia. So what the BBC is doing is vital on a global level as well as actually informing us as well. I think you know we'd all agree that what the BBC is doing is fantastic. Where then do we see kind of these other... Is the role of, say, at times here to provide analysis, not kind of the, the up-to-date news, is it to provide high-quality analysis on what's going on here so people can understand the reasons behind it instead of just the up-to-the-minute, um, I suppose, match report? I think they'll still be pr- producing up-to-the-minute news. The, the Press Gazette also did a piece about how many journalists are actually in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's a lot of people. And it goes, you know, from from the Times to the FT to to the, the broadcasters. There's, there's loads and loads of people in Ukraine doing this really, really important work. Oh, I, I think this goes back to your, your earlier question, though, which um, is that that is all incredibly expensive to produce and to produce well. Mm. And to do well, and that the Times absolutely should have a hard paywall up if they if that's their model. And oh yeah, if that's how they choose to monetize it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't know which one of you's put which they're obviously wrong about in the notes. Oh no, only saying that 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 saying that the hard paywall is the only way to monetize people. You know, as we've said before, people saying good journalism is worth paying for is worth paying for is the start of the conversation, not the end. Mm. You know, and look at what the Guardian's doing, for instance. They they're still the outlier in terms of getting people to pay to support them, and it's free to access. But actually, Hannah talked quite a bit about this, is the idea that if you go back to, well, you can start at Brexit, but if you go back to before Brexit and the referendum, and then you I had wish. Trump, and then you had the, then you had COVID and the pandemic, and now you got this, and it's, if you're in a newsroom and you're covering that every single day, Jesus, well. Well, meanwhile, a quick plug. If you haven't listened to Peter's interview with Jakub Arzinski on the podcast, then he is uh, he has a wealth of information about what it is like to produce journalism, not just in the UK for the fix, but in terms of uh, in Ukraine as well. So last week I interviewed him for the drum show and he gave us an update on how we can all help uh, journalism and journalists in there. And he spoke about how hard it is to move, for instance, bulletproof vests for journalists in and around Ukraine, Ukraine, no matter how much money you have. So please do check that out. And we'll also include links to his current fundraisers, which he's doing uh, in collaboration with a bunch of other people in the episode description. So if you can kick in a couple of quid just to make sure that people in Ukraine have accurate information, please do so. And now for the news in brief. Last week, the FT announced it had 1 million digital subscribers. Uh, I thought it was an interesting angle on this story because Digiday interviewed John Slade. Uh, He's a commercial guy at FT. And, they were talking about the reader revenue side of this, but also they were talking about how this 1 million digital subscribers will help their advertising business. And I thought, I mean, Chris, I know you and I, we talked about how we've spoken about this in the past, but I thought it was really interesting how rather than it being all about reader revenue, it was about reader revenue, which is now more than half of their revenues. Um, but it was also about how this would power, that was what they used, their advertising business. And I think that's, we, we don't talk about that enough, that mm. the infrastructure that's put in place to support a full-on proper subscription business brings you first-party data that can then be used to help sell advertising. And I, you know, Br- Brian Morris talks about this, doesn't he, where media is like, or publishing people are like kids, tiny kids playing football and they all just chase the ball and they're all just running around after the ball, whether that ball is video or paywalls or whatever. Um, and I think this idea of holding two thoughts in your head at the same time is really quite interesting. And my news in brief is that Substack has launched a new reading app on iOS, which allows you to read everything you subscribe to via email in a dedicated place other than your inbox. So the app 
it's got features that you know aren't yet possible in email like background podcast listening video embeds real-time comment threads in principle it's not a bad idea um i think it's pete who did the newsletter that day and pointed out that um Substack co-founder Chris Best's references to the halcyon days of Google Reader were quite <laughs> nauseating. So they've, they've basically invented Medium. Um, the, the especially worrying part that came out of this launch is that there's a pause email notifications button, which um, I know Brian Morrison and um, Adam Timworth and our brothers sort of went and downloaded this. It's set to on by default. Um, so yeah, there's a practical element here. If you've subscribed to an email newsletter and you're reading it in the Substack app, you're not going to necessarily want it duplicated. But if you're, um, yeah, if, if you distribute your newsletter through Substack and you're expected to hit people's inboxes, this is quite a worrying development because you've now got to essentially navigate that relationship with the Substack platform. And we're just back at the platforms. <laughs> um, so if personally, if I was on Substack, this would have me absolutely running for the hills. And finally, a group of around 50 independent media outlets in Australia are gearing up for a day-long news strike in protest of being left out of discussions around the news media bargaining code. So as the first anniversary of that comes into effect uh, approaches, a number of titles are accusing tech giants and federal government of effectively cutting them out of the discussion around receiving direct payments from Google and Facebook for including them in search results. So Nick Shelton, I think this is a really good quote here from Nick Shelton, who is the chief exec of one of those publications, the Broadsheet Media, says... The competitive implications are significant. These large publishers, who we compete with daily, now have an additional stream of revenue that we don't have. As a result, we are being outspent on talent, on marketing, and on technology, and anything else required to run a top-tier publication. But, 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 oh my God, who could have seen this? No, this came out of the blue, surely. I mean, God, we who could have seen this coming? It's not like we spoke about this endlessly. It's not like the people who were big boosters of this deliberately ignored the fact that this was going to happen and, yeah, are still remaining silent on this. It's, very, it's just a weird, it's bizarre, isn't it? News media bargaining code enables people with lots of bargaining power to ultimately win the conversation. Yeah. That's, that's exactly the point. But if, if, if you're a big publisher, why would you not take the millions while you can? Well, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was what, uh, I think it was Emily Bell commented on this. Um, it's not necessarily a bad idea. It's just really badly implemented. It yeah. is. A, and anything where you're requiring Google to pay you for appearing search results is a terrible, terrible idea and goes against the entire point of the internet. Well, the entire point of the internet, we have just already talked about Substack and the platform. So the entire point of the internet has disappeared into the <laughs> distance anyway. Oh, gosh, we're going to end up turning into Web3 evangelists at this, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. I spoke with the founder of the Headlines Network, Hannah Storm, about her work to improve the mental health of people working in the media. We spoke about how to improve mental health in the media, what organisations and individuals can do, and we spoke about her new podcast, Behind the Headlines. But first, we spoke about Hannah's own background as a frontline journalist. So I began my career, I mean, I think I once a journalist, always a journalist, right? But I was. I began my career as a journalist, started at Reuters, the news agency, um, what feels like a million years ago, but it's probably only kind of less than 25 years ago. Um, I've spent a lot of time living and working and traveling overseas and working in different types of media, online, uh, broadcast, print for some. I've been very lucky to work for some of the biggest news organizations in the world. Um, I spent time until about 2010 doing that on the ground journalism and 
Then I covered the earthquake in Haiti for Channel 4 News. And after that, I realized that, well, I didn't realize actually. And it's funny because talking to you now, I can feel my breath speeding up, but I didn't realize how badly I'd been impacted by it. I then afterwards went to work for a journalism safety charity called the International News Safety Institute, working with news organizations around the world really to help them keep their staff safe, help mitigate risk. And then fast forward kind of a few years on from that, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, complex PTSD, as my family likes to say, I never do anything by halves. Um, But, uh, you know, I'd had it for a few years. And by then, actually, by the diagnosis, I was actually getting better. And I really decided that all of those previous few years of work in safety, where I'd done some really great work, and I'd written some reports, and I'd kind of led conversations, had been motivated by my own experiences, really. And um, it was important to me to get better keep keep on getting better but also then I decided to become a media consultant after I'd done a brief stint running the ethical journalism network and working with news organizations and journalists around the world to help them really understand how supporting mental health can be really critical to helping journalism get better as well and that's what's brought you to the headline network yeah, I had this idea, I think, somewhere in during COVID times. And I think that, you know, the other thing that's perhaps helpful to say is, and that's how you and I know each other, Peter, ultimately, is yeah. I, we met through writing. So I, I write a lot and writing has been a real therapy for me. I've been through the traditional forms of therapy, but writing has been really therapeutic to me. And and I wrote my kind of trauma out of my system, as it were, right? I kind of relive my experiences through writing. And during that process, I kind of started thinking about stories and storytelling and how often we're conditioned as journalists not to tell our own stories. And actually, it's fine. We shouldn't be telling our own stories in certain instances, for sure. But actually being able to have conversations about what's impacted us can be really helpful. And hearing stories of others can be really helpful. So I thought a lot of my work had been about connecting interesting people in the past with other interesting people, be that, you know, how do you get in safely to a war zone or how do you get out of a war zone or how do you support somebody on online harm? But I thought, well, what if we had more of an open conversation about what mental health is or what emotional well-being is? And we bring people together to have conversations about what the news industry is like. And it's not great, to be honest, in mental health terms, but how can we make a difference and how can we change things and how can we help people be able to feel safer speaking about their experiences. So we set up headlines last year. I'd been thinking about it probably for nine months previous. I kept bumping into this guy called John Crowley on on panels about burnout and about well-being. And and we kept having these conversations about, well, what are we going to do? And it was always like, what are we going to do? And then the conversation stopped there. And I thought, well, actually... Sod it, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to do something. And actually, I said to John, I really want to set up this company. So we founded the company. And yeah, it went from there. You you said it's not great in news. Why do you think that is? Look, I mean, there's lots of reasons, I think, why we're not great at admissions of vulnerability in news. I think that across the board, everywhere, there's a significant taboo and stigma and shame around mental health. Um, I think that news organizations and I have to say that during the last two years they have got slightly better and I think because everybody has realized that it's been a really difficult two years so more news organizations are prioritizing these conversations but the industry itself is traditionally really kind of um, macho it's really white cis male university educated and with that unfortunately goes a type of belief that um, we shouldn't kind of speak our truths we shouldn't 
kind of speak our vulnerabilities that actually we have to have this kind of like really strong manner and actually we've been conditioned to coping mechanisms that are not necessarily the fun at the time perhaps but they're not necessarily the healthiest and actually we see behavior role modeled by people in charge that doesn't allow a space where people can share their experiences so it is changing i mean even the conversations around physical safety took a while to get going and sadly you know only got going when we really saw the impact it was having on people i think now we're at this stage where i do believe that we've got a bit of a crisis ahead of us in terms of in mental health terms but i do also also believe there's a little bit of change happening and that's great and that's kind of what we're trying to be part of that change i think you've just launched a podcast the first episode of your podcast was two war correspondents bbc's least to set channel four's lindsay hilsom i mean it's dramatic stuff they're talking about the death of marie colvin who's a journalist that was killed in syria about 10 years ago so those mental health challenges are obvious and even with you talking about covering the earthquake in Haiti. But what about other media people, maybe people that are just working in more kind of regular media circumstances? Do you think that that mental health challenge is still is still real? You know, when we did the podcast, we we launched the podcast in, in February. And the first one for us was really important because it was 10 years on. As you mentioned, since Marie was killed, Marie was a bit of a role model to me. And I remember kind of doing work experience at the Sunday Times and seeing this phenomenal human being and being frankly quite scared of her, to be honest. But I mean, but also she was, she, you know, she she helped me out a, a little bit. And Lisa and Lindsay have both also been role models to me. So yes, but I wanted to talk about for them about this kind of sense of, you know, how do you manage? How do you manage? How do you cope? But also I think that we do have this tendency a lot of the times in journalism to kind of group people into different groups and go, oh, well, they're covering war or conflict or they're covering disasters. And therefore, of course, a mental health toll is significant or can be significant because everybody's different. So yes, but one of the things I don't think we're so great at as an industry is really considering the fact that mental well-being is a really necessary conversation for everyone in journalism, no matter where we work, no matter what stories we cover. We've seen people experiencing significant degrees of burnout, which is not a mental health condition, but it still impacts our ability to do our jobs. You know, whatever whatever they're doing in journalism, we see people covering stories like the current awful conflict in Ukraine remotely and seeing images coming in remotely and experiencing vicarious trauma um, or experiencing the risk of that. We see people doing dealing with misinformation and disinformation and, and the burden that weighs on them. We see journalists attacked uh, for whatever story they do online, and that's having a massive impact. We see the pressures that have been exacerbated by COVID, be that working from home or balancing family and work life or you know falling ad revenues. All of that stuff is impacting on the mental health of journalists. So I think it's really important to normalize the conversation and say that actually this can have an effect on anybody anywhere hopefully not everybody but i think that it's it's just got to be part of, of the conversation we have in newsrooms about how do we do this better the work that you're actually doing how do you go about that how do you make things better we're not doing it by ourselves for sure and i think we can only ever do this as part of a kind of collaboration and you know we're certainly not in it to kind of say hey we're the best at doing this or we're going to wave a magic wand or we're going to do this overnight because we're not. Um, we're trying to, as I say, promote, encourage, improve, amplify conversations. And we're doing it in three ways, I think. We have these kind of 
three T's, I suppose, and and it's talking, tips and training. And the talking is through encouraging conversations and doing that predominantly through the podcast where, where we find that we are inviting guests who are fairly high profile across the industry to speak about how they see mental health, how they cope, how they manage. So that's the talking aspect. The tips aspect is, so we ran a set of workshops in the back end of last year, which was part of the, the conversation, but partly working with journalists across the UK media to um, think about practical tips that we could help use to support our mental health. So we're developing that into a kind of more specific kind of um, practical tips now at the moment around managing our own mental health and supporting colleagues and we are going to be developing training as well for managers we're, we're really conscious that a lot of the time when they have conversations and I facilitate a regular news industry conversation around mental health as well separately and often I hear that managers are really struggling managers don't know how to start a conversation with their staff they're struggling themselves they feel squeezed and actually they want to have the confidence to be able to start those conversations because they recognize that if they can create these spaces where people feel heard better listened to and they have the skills and tips to employ that then it can only be good for the industry and I think you know back to what I said at the start it's about collaboration and we've been really fortunate to collaborate in the workshops with Mind the mental health charity uh, with Dr. Sean Williams who is our second podcast guest who's both a presenter and counseling psychologist and a group called Cast Care Clinic that do a lot of work in duty of care for um, the TV and, and media industry so it's all about collaboration for us. Where's your funding coming from? Have you got funding? We're supported by Google at the moment the Google News Initiative. We also do bespoke work with other news organizations as well um, who pay for us to go into into the newsrooms and to an extent some of the work initially was us doing it pro bono we're looking to diversify our funds at the moment and we're very conscious that there is a commitment and an investment in terms of the funding recognition but I think that often mental health is still an afterthought and I do feel like across the industry there's still not enough financial investment into these conversations whereas we've seen the financial investment into conversations around physical safety perhaps because it's not quite so tangible people quite quite aren't grasping that actually you know it does affect the bottom line and it's a bit of an icky thing to talk about right but it does affect the bottom line it's sick days insurance etc etc so the reverse to headlines is bottom lines so actually i want to be able to say to people please invest in this because really it can only be good for you. So interesting. We have the same sort of conversation about diversity and inclusion uh, and that idea that, yeah, it's a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. But actually, it has a business impact. It makes you a better publisher. It does. It does. And I think, you know, the thing is you can't, you know, you can't separate out conversations about diversity and inclusion from conversations around mental health, too, because I think the really critical thing here is that actually the journalists who have perhaps been most marginalized by our industry are those who often feel less able to speak out about their experiences. When I speak with journalists, they say, well, I didn't talk about my experiences because I was worried about the reputational impact. I was worried it was going to have repercussions on my career. I was worried about this. And if you have joined an industry where you don't see yourself and you haven't seen yourself and you've been marginalized, that's even worse. That, that potential impact is even worse because you don't feel like you can speak with people who look like you, who sound like you, who have the same perspectives as you. For me, it's obvious, but I think perhaps maybe that's because I've been working in the field for for such a long time. So you got this new podcast. Why did you decide you needed to do a podcast? 
everybody decides they want to do a podcast, right? <laughs> and we all want to do a podcast. Yeah, but then we do it and we think, oh my God, this is a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but my goodness, you know, I mean, I spent a lot of time doing radio in the past and I guess that I'm just like a, you know, I miss my radio days. And so partly it was around, I love, new, I love kind of learning new skills and things and kind of pushing myself, but also partly it was about, this is a conversation, right? You, you, we feel so isolated in mental health terms. I remember feeling desperately isolated when I was not very well. And even though I was kind of running this big journalism safety organization and I was kind of like the superwoman inverted commas, but I felt very much alone. And I really would have loved to have just had an open conversation with somebody about, hey, how do you feel, Hannah? But actually also recognizing that not everybody feels able to speak about their experiences. So it was a kind of like radio is cool. It's a really cool medium, right? Also, um, or audio is a really cool medium, I suppose, is, is the better way of saying it. Also, that conversation lies at the heart of mental health. Conversation lies at the heart of journalism for me. And it was like, well, why don't we get some really cool people and have a chat with them and talk about the stories they've covered and how that's affected them and, you know, what's made a difference for them and maybe look a little bit behind the headlines, behind the kind of scenes in journalism and say, you know, what is the reality of the kind of newsroom and why? why does journalism matter? And I think that, you know, why do journalists who are journalism's most precious resource matter? And, you know, what can we do to ensure that more people recognize that they matter? So, yeah, I mean, we've been really lucky. We got Lisa and Lindsay on the first podcast episode and we've just spoken with Sean Williams and, and that's been amazing. And we've got probably half a dozen others lined up. The first podcast episode talked about risk and you know, it came out and I deep sigh there because none of us could have really predicted quite how resonant I think some of the content would have been because it's about risk. And, you know, we see, I think we're talking now three weeks in, just over three weeks into uh, Ukraine and we've seen colleagues die. We've seen colleagues die and we've seen colleagues hurt and we've seen colleagues, God knows how many colleagues have been emotionally hurt too. And, they talk about the risks and they talk about the need to protect journalists. And Sean talks later about the need to protect storytellers. And yeah, I know that sometimes people hate journalists and I know that <laughs> sometimes people think we're all awful. All awful. Um, and I know that even the kind of phrase storyteller apparently is not that cool nowadays because it, defi- it suggests that we're making up things up. But, you know, <laughs> I strongly believe that this is a really interesting way to potentially get other people to go, oh, my goodness. I've been through something similar. I'm less alone. The episode with uh, with Lisa and Lindsay uh, is wild. You know, they're talking about times that I can't even begin to imagine. But th- that episode is very different from your second episode because Sean you know, is best known, I suppose, as a as a breakfast TV presenter. And she's you know there's a coziness there, and yet she's still talking about those issues. What's the thread that runs through those two episodes? I love both episodes, but what I just loved with the first episode is I felt like I was sitting in the living room with Lisa and Lindsay and they were just kind of like chattering away as old mates and you know I as I said before I've been fortunate to be to to work with both of them and I think they're both fantastic but it was we couldn't get them to be quiet they just talked like pretty much non-stop for 45 minutes and we were trying to get a word in edgeways and they both said that to us you know oh but it was like Marie was there too because it was this kind of like presence of Marie in the room too and it was just lovely to just say hey you know hey folks just talk and I think that Sean you know and we were very privileged to work with Sean in the workshops and for Headlines Network and I think 
what amazes me and astounds me about Sean is that she is, yes, you say best known as a as a breakfast presenter, now presenter of, of Channel 5, but she's a counselling psychologist yeah. as well. And she's just, you know, she's phenomenally well experienced in this space. And what she did was she talked about not only the science and kind of the expertise, but how her own personal and professional experience that have led her to that. And I think the thread that connects, I think it's a couple of things. It's that sense of empathy and humanity that we're trying to draw out from these conversations, like what makes us tick and the stories we do, how they impact us. But I think crucially, it's that sense of, you know, we're not robots. We say at the start of the podcast, you know, journalists aren't robots. We are human beings. Things affect us, impact us. We have to navigate a way through that means that we're doing justice to the story, that we're doing justice to the people with whom we interact in, in bringing the story about, to the voices, um, if you like. And I think that's what the thread is, is how do we as journalists tell these stories in a way that is humane and thoughtful and has empathy but in a way that we're also recognizing that this has an impact on us and that also that this really matters and this really matters and the only way that we can ensure that this continues to matter is is that we support ourselves to stay well to do the jobs to the best of our ability which I appreciate may sound incredibly trite and very idealistic and pretty naive but I don't think it is naive because I have been working in the industry for 25 years but I think it's that. And let's get people to see that we're not automatons and see that we're not robots. And actually, that makes a difference. Well, it can't be a rough industry. Sean talks at one point uh, uh, about orchids and dandelions. Uh, and I recognized that immediately from my time. You know, I've never done hard news. I always worked in business to business. Um, but I recognize that, that idea that, oh, there's these little delicate flowers in the corner over here, and then there's these ones that grow in the cracks, and we kind of prefer the ones that grow in the cracks because they're easier. But actually, everyone's bringing something to it all. And again, without being crass, it does come back to having a better organization, a more profitable, better functioning organization. It, it really does. And, and I think the thing is that my colleague, John, probably gets a bit fed up of me saying this, but I think there is something in this. And I think that, you know, we talk about the journalism, we talk about the content we create, you know, we know that good journalism thrives on empathy. We have to employ empathy in our in the work that we do, because that's how we get our best stories. And, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of journalism we're doing, it's about connection. And I think that what we don't do so well is use those skills on ourselves, kind of turn them in into our newsrooms and actually go, okay, so how can I employ the kind of really good skills of journalism to help make my newsroom more effective, more efficient, run better from a cost perspective, uh, from a bottom line perspective, just from an HR perspective, all of that stuff. So I think that you're right. I mean, it's about making things sustainable as well. So if I'm running a media organization, what should I be doing? What would you be telling me to do to look after my staff? Oh my goodness, we could be talking about this until, you know, the year 2050, I guess, but recognize it as important. First of all, I think, listen, create a space where you can listen. A lot of the time I hear people say, you know, nobody's listening to me. We're speaking now, you know, as I said, three weeks into Ukraine and, and, and people are exhausted. People are overworked. They're feeling underpaid. They're feeling burnt out. Recognize journalists as the resource without journalists you can't do journalism right so if you if you 
if you wear your journalists into the ground and I'm hearing anecdotes of people saying, I'm going to have to leave the industry because I just can't deal with this anymore. You know, these are your most precious resources. Don't abuse them. Don't kind of don't don't treat them badly. You know, recognize they've been through difficult times because this is cumulative. Yeah, we've been through two years of really difficult times with the pandemic. And even before that, there was a lot of relentless news. There was all of the stuff with Trump. There was kind of attacks on journalists, all of that going on Brexit. Um, so much stuff that had impacted us and worn some of us, not all of us down. So there's listening. There's making sure that people are aware of the policies you've got in place and that they're visible because that often people go, oh, we've got an employee assistance program in place. And people are like, really? Really? We didn't know that. I think trying to make sure that people don't feel more overwhelmed by the provisions you're giving them because, oh God, it's another thing that we have to deal with, you know, is is perhaps the sense that we feel too often. I think um, role modeling effective leadership is really important and being a human being and actually it's okay. It should be okay. It's not necessarily okay. It should be okay to say, look, you know, I've been struggling too. And I think ultimately making it clear to people that speaking about their mental health and well-being is not going to have an impact is not going to have an impact on their work and their career progression and it's not going to have a repercussion and actually it's a really good thing to admit vulnerability if you can vulnerability can be reframed as a strength and i think also noting that not everybody has to feel that they need to speak out because not everybody always wants to and that's really important as well and if i'm a journalist and i'm struggling what what should i be doing to help myself it's really hard giving yourself permission ultimately first of all you know it's it's really hard to see and there's so many different ways of phrasing this but you know one of the ones i like both best is that you know when you're flying somewhere and someone says put on your own oxygen mask first that sense of you have to do that you have to do that because you can't help other people until you help yourself so recognize and another one I use that John kind of hears so much from me is that in English the two first letters of mental health are me Mm. me so it's about prioritizing yourself so recognizing that and giving yourself permission and then seeing where you can say no seeing where you can provide what Mark Cabra who's another wonderful colleague who works in this space is provide friction all of our boundaries have been blurred over the last few years and so providing friction in terms of can we turn our notifications off occasionally on our phone I put a a thing in my calendar meeting with Hannah and it's like well I'm giving myself some space and some permission can we create some intentional space between if we're working from home our work life and our professional life so I'm five meters from my bedroom at the moment but I will go out in the morning for the school run or a proper run and actually create that bridge all of the spontaneity of the past has been taken away or most of it and so actually we thrive on spontaneity as journalists I think even though we still need to plan things but I think what we need to do even more now is be more intentional about things the number of zoom calls or teams calls or google calls or god knows what platform calls we have is sometimes I feel like there's no space to actually do anything and if I feel that way you know my goodness I don't know how many other people do feel that way so trying to limit those where we can and also you know again Just say no. I mean, it's so hard to say no sometimes, but giving ourselves permission to say no can be the first step, I think, to really being able to do things effectively. And exercise. But I've said that. And eat well. And don't drink too much alcohol. But it's but you know, this it's the basics, I think, but 
but kind of talking and connecting with colleagues is is definitely another really key thing that is worth reaffirming and I'm hopefully that's what we've done through through headlines so we ask all our guests for a recommendation what would you recommend one of the most powerful books I've read recently and it goes back to the podcast that I mentioned before with Lisa and Lindsay is in extremis it's the book about the life of war correspondent Marie Colvin it is a brilliantly written book it is just very powerful about this woman who was both extraordinary and fragile and messed up mm. and it's but it's really well written by by her friends Lindsay Helsom so in extremis and the other one I would say is a slightly different book it's called trauma reporting and it's by a colleague and friend of mine called Joe Healy and Joe does brilliant work and it's basically practical advice for journalists about how do you navigate that often difficult and sensitive relationship with people who have been exposed to really difficult stories or who have lost people in a really traumatic way and it's a brilliant set of tools that can help us build those better relationships with people whose stories we're telling and where we're telling the stories of people they've lost as well. And we are just over six weeks away from the Publisher Podcast Awards. Guys, this is actually going to be my first trip to London since hey, the last nice. Publisher Podcast Awards. <laughs> so if you want to join um, a couple of hundred of us partying in a very glamorous basement in the city, I've already sold and that why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you? That sounds no, awful. Uh, that sounds like a dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> that might appeal to some people. It's actually Whoa. a very classy nightclub, yeah. We can go to the dungeon afterwards. <laughs> No, it's a a proud to have a massive renovation since we were there as well. So really excited to be at Proud City. Um, That's going to be the 27th of April to celebrate the Publisher Podcast Awards. Um, We have just over 15 tickets remaining, which is not very many. Um, There's a couple of tables as well. So uh, yeah, if you want to join us there, head to publisherpodcastawards.com slash tickets. We will see you there. Nice. We should be charging a premium if there's only 15 left. That's like supply and demand, right? <laughs> Sell them as NFTs. Oh, oh what an idea. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to keep up with what's going on on a daily basis, then we have a newsletter. It goes out every morning, 7 o'clock, and we pick the top four stories that we think are worth looking at from the media. You can get that. Subscribe at voices.media but until next week when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and another tour through everything that's been going on in the media world thank you very much for listening and do stay safe bye bye